This is Barry Zelma, Zelma on insurance. Today I'd like to speak about evaluation and settlement of liability claims. Case evaluation is necessary to the efficient operation of a third-party liability claims department. The evaluation should be completed as soon as reasonably practical after the completion of a thorough investigation. A quick resolution and payment of the claim will result in a lower amount of settlement with the claimant and lower expenses incurred by the insurer. It should be the goal of every claims adjuster to pay the deserving claimant every dollar owed as soon as possible. This goal should be tempered by the need to preserve the assets of the insurer and the insured. It is axiomatic that a liability claim can be settled for less before suit is filed than after. Settlement is favored by the law and by insurers, claimants, and insureds. Every effort should be made to resolve the claim before litigation begins. After litigation begins, the courts will work to assist any litigant willing to settle. Private mediators are available for a fee to meet with parties to assist them in resolving the claim before litigation begins or becomes active. Courts often require parties to meet at least once before a judge attempts settlement in a mandatory settlement conference or before the case can go to trial. If settlement appears possible, courts will schedule several such conferences to work toward a settlement. An experienced adjuster should be flexible and willing to settle every case if the right price can be found. To evaluate the exposure faced by the insured, the adjuster must know the damages allowable in the jurisdiction, the liability facts, the defenses available to the insured, whether comparative or contributory negligence applies in the jurisdiction, and many subjective factors that affect the value of a given case. The evaluation of a case includes a review of the facts, the law, the opponent, counsel for the opponent, and the forum, that is, the court or judge who will hear the case. Evaluation of a personal injury or wrongful death claim generally begins with damages rather than liability. It has been said by experienced adjusters that if the damages are serious enough, liability on the part of the insured is either unnecessary or only a factor allowing for a reduced or negotiated settlement. Although not a correct statement of the law, it is a recognition of the real world of litigation where juries can be convinced to ignore the issues of liability when the plaintiff's injuries are so severe that their sympathy for the plaintiff overcomes their duty to apply the law strictly. The adjuster must first determine what damages are recoverable. This is actually a question of substantive law and will vary from state to state 
So an all-encompassing treatment of damages is virtually impossible. The broad character categories are generally uniform. The trends are consistent across the country. Damages are categorized differently in personal injury and wrongful death cases. Damages are usually categorized as actual damages, which can include special and general damages, or even can include, in the event of an intentional tort, exemplary and punitive damages. When evaluating claims by an adjuster, the most common division is between special and general damages. Special damages are those that are subject to reasonably specific calculation, such as hospital or doctor bills. General damages are those that cannot be easily calculated and are subjective, like the trouble and inconvenience the accident caused the claimant or the plaintiff, pain and suffering, and loss of comfort from a spouse. The adjuster and defense counsel must, at some point, make a realistic estimate of the special and general damages incurred by the plaintiff. Actual damages in a personal injury or bodily injury case cover general and special damages. Special damages include, at the very least, medical expenses, past and future. Future damages need to be established exactly, but will be usually estimated based upon expert testimony. Lost wages or income, past and future. In many jurisdictions, this element is not limited to actual loss. It is not even limited to projected future loss of actual wages. Instead, the plaintiff will claim and may recover loss of wage-earning capacity. General damages include what claims people like to call trouble and inconvenience. To make the idea of such damages less painful semantically, insurers use the euphemism, trouble and inconvenience, to mean what normal people would call pain and suffering and mental anguish. Regardless of the name used to describe them, these damages are real and are recoverable in any court of law. They break down into two subcategories. One, physical pain and suffering. The jury has considerable discretion in setting the amount of damages for this element because it is subjective. Failure to find some damage for pain and suffering can result in a reversal on appeal if actual injury is found or is undisputed. 2. Mental anguish. Although this is frequently combined with physical pain in most jurisdictions, it is a separate element of damage. It seems to include everything from hurt feelings to fear, embarrassment, and mortification. A physical manifestation of injury is necessary in most states to support a mental anguish claim, but not at all. The adjuster must learn to quantify these damages 
in order to reasonably evaluate the exposure faced by the insured and simultaneously the insurer. Sources to help quantify this type of subjective damages include jury verdict research. Publishers provide the adjuster or defense counsel with the historical and current values juries put on the same type of injury in the same jurisdiction. The records of the insurer on the amounts paid to settle similar claims in the same jurisdiction. The experience of the individual adjuster, his or her knowledge of the amounts needed to settle claims in his or her location. And finally, the experience of a mediator or settlement conference judge. All of these working together should assist the adjuster and or defense counsel in determining the proper value for claims of mental anguish. Then when evaluating an injury, one must look at the physical impairment caused by the accident. This is a limitation caused by something other than pain and suffering. Physical impairment can include loss of vision, loss of hearing, paralysis, the inability to move or use a limb where the limitation does not result from pain and broken bones. Then there's disfigurement damages, which includes scarring, deformity, amputation, and similar injuries, all of which have only a subjective value since none can be totally cured. Household services is a type of damage that is again subjective. Household services include the value of the services which the wife or husband performs in the home, including caring for the family. This is not limited to the pecuniary equivalent of such services. It can include intangible elements of the value of the person as a spouse and parent. Economists are not reluctant to place a high value on this element of damages. A plaintiff seeking this particular element of damages will often tug at the heartstrings of a trier of fact, be it a judge or jury. It is often difficult to pursue because it always relies on the subjective tests and conclusions made by the trier fact, whether it be a judge or a jury. Loss of consortium damages is a damage resulting from a loss of the entire marital relationship and includes affection, solace, comfort, companionship, society, assistance, sexual relations, emotional support, love and felicity, not necessarily in any order of importance. The claim is derivative, and a loss of consortium claim was found to be dependent on an injured spouse's right to recover. If the injured spouse could not be able to recover for his or her injuries, then the uninjured spouse may not recover for loss of consortium. Although the right of action is independent, 
Case law also recognizes that a spouse's claim for loss of consortium is not a separate injury, but is derivative of the injured spouse's personal injury claim. Loss of consortium is wholly derivative and merely provides access to an additional category of damages if a defendant's liability can be established under another legal theory. If plaintiffs cannot establish liability against the non-diverse individual defendants on any of their other substantive claims, they have no right to an award of consortium damages against these defendants. A settlement, including a release executed by an injured plaintiff, does not extinguish the claim of the plaintiff's spouse. There is also a developing trend favoring consortium recovery in family relationships other than just between spouses, such as mother and child, father and child, child and parent, spouses, and any other relative that relies upon the injured person. Prejudgment interest is often available while the beginning date and rate of interest vary from state to state. This can be a significant element as the case grows older. Not all courts allow prejudgment interest. Those that do mostly limit it to contract actions where a definite amount of loss can be determined before judgment. In most jurisdictions, including Texas, California, Arizona, and Florida, punitive damages are recoverable in cases of willful torts such as fraud, assault, battery, or trespass. In Texas, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, and other jurisdictions, punitive damages are available in cases of gross negligence. The initial Texas tort reform legislation in 1987 limited the amount recoverable to four times the actual damages. Tort reform in Texas continued, with the most important change coming in 2003. Non-economic damages were capped at $250,000 for doctors, with an additional cap of $250,000 for each of up to two medical care institutions. In Texas, punitive damages resulting from gross negligence are covered by standard insurance policies protecting the insured from damages arising from his or her negligence. Punitive damages, if they must exist, should, in my opinion, be only recoverable for fraud or intentional torts or for a willful disregard of the rights of a third party. Further, in the majority of states, insurance is not available for punitive damages as against public policy, because punitive damages are assessed against intentional or fraudulent acts that by definition are never fortuitous. If a person can buy insurance to pay punitive damages, he or she will defeat the purpose of punitive damages and could be encouraged to act intentionally to harm a person 
since the cost of such wrongful conduct will be borne by an insurer. This video was adapted from my book, Selma on Insurance Claims, Part 107, Second Edition, which is available as both a Kindle book and a paperback from Amazon.com. If you found this video to be interesting or useful to you and your colleagues, please pass it on. It's free. And please also subscribe to my YouTube channel, my Rumble channel, my blog, and my Substack publications and please also click on the like button on YouTube or the rumble button on rumble as you view the video. Thank you for your attention.